The following audio is from a sermon series called Recalibrate. In this sermon series, we take a look at the DNA of Sacred City Church, the identities and rhythms that are given to us in the gospel, and how we live together in community and on mission. For more information on Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from John 8:31 and Matthew 16:24. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the word of the Lord kind of hit the halfway point uh, with this sermon series called Recalibrate, where where today marks the last day. We're rounding out our our identity in the gospel, right? What What we receive when we believe in Jesus as our new identity. And so if you're just joining us, I just want to quickly retrace my steps for the last few weeks. Uh, we started this whole thing by first looking at the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the good news? And, and we examine this and we find that the gospel is the good news of what God has accomplished for us on our behalf in the person and work of Jesus. Ephesians 2 highlights that we were dead in our sins, being dead in our sins, we were separated from God. But now, through the work of Jesus and, and placing our trust and our hope in him, we are made alive, that he has given us a new life, that we've been brought near to God. And through this gospel, we see that we're also adopted now as part of God's family, that that no longer are we aliens and strangers. We are part of God's family. He he says, "I, I love you, I choose you, I'm bringing you into my family. He adopts us. Therefore, we in the faith are brothers and sisters. We look across the pews and we can see that we are the family of God been joined together through the blood of Christ. But then the next thing we see in our identity is not only are we made a family, but we're a family of missionaries that God brings us in in order so he can send us right back out to proclaim his glory, his excellencies, his gospel to the world that is longing to know who God is. And as a family of missionaries, the the primary way that we identify or, or relate to one another, not just each other, but to the world at large is as servants, as Christ Jesus himself came as the servant king, we too become servants to the world. Now, all of this identity that we've been unpacking so far is is related specifically to who Jesus is, that Jesus was God's perfect son who was pushed out so that we can be brought in. Jesus was the ultimate missionary who left the comfort of heaven to bring us back to God. Jesus is the ultimate servant king who lays down his life for his friends. And so today we come to the final piece. What, what we actually, you can, you can spend all day kind of picking apart the identities in the gospel. We like to package it up nice and simple. Four identities in the gospel that sort of come out of this. And today we're going to round out this gospel identity. And this time it stems from, our identity in the gospel stems from who Jesus is as the creator of the universe. When John begins his gospel in chapter 1, he says that through Jesus, all things were made. And without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. 
Now, when you create something, you're the one who knows how it works best, right? My son, Kuiper, he's about three, he's gonna be four pretty soon. He, he loves to play with Legos. And the other day while his mom was at Porterbrook, um, we were playing in the living room and he's got this Lego contraption and I have no idea what it is, but he builds it and he's like, look, dad, it's a something. I was like, oh, cool, what does it do? Right? And he's like, oh, it does this, this, and this, right? And he's using his imagination. But as the creator of this little contraption, he determines the function. He determines the way it's made to be used. And the same is true with Jesus as our creator. As the creator of the universe, Jesus knows how life works best, how to thrive in a robust relationship with God and with others, even in a fallen world, in a world that's not the way that he created it to be originally. Now, when Jesus came to earth, he had a spectacular ministry. Uh, Many, many years he was unknown, right? The son of a poor carpenter, under the radar, but in the last three years of Jesus' life, he would go around and, and really his main objective was to tell people about the kingdom of God, And as he would go and he would preach and he would teach, people would call him rabbi, which means it's a Jewish word that we don't really use here except for uh, ordained ministers or rabbis, I guess, in the Jewish faith. But in in that first century context, it was more of an informal word uh, ascribed to teachers, people who were viewed as wise. They had some sort of information that the rest of the public desired to know. And so Jesus went around teaching and people would call him rabbi because Jesus had a unique insight to the Old Testament that no other rabbi or teacher of his day had. In fact, Jesus shows us through the gospel accounts how he surpassed the wisdom of religious leaders. Time and time again, these religious leaders, there's just, if you read the Bible, you'll see that Jesus and the religious leaders of that day did not get along very well. Uh, The religious leaders didn't like that Jesus was viewed as this wise teacher, that he had some sort of insight to, to God's word that they didn't have. And so as as Jesus interacted with these men, they would try to confront him. They'd try to make him look stupid. They'd try to get him in a trap. But time and time again, Jesus would show how he was, his wisdom surpassed that wisdom of the scribes and the Pharisees of that time. And he showed, he showed them, really, in a truer sense, what God was all about. But even more remarkable than Jesus' teaching was the authority that Jesus would teach with. As he talked Uh, you could visibly see God's power. See, Jesus not only came proclaiming, but he came doing, performing miracles. He, He turned water into wine. He healed people. He cast out demons. And as he would do this, as he would teach, thousands of people would come and listen to him from all over. This little no-name carpenter boy. As Jesus began his ministry, among all of these thousands of people that he would uh, gather together to, to hear his teaching, he chose 12 men by name to be his disciples, to be his followers. Now, literally, these men would follow Jesus around like the shadow on his back. Everywhere Jesus went, they would go too. They were learning from Jesus, observing what Jesus did. They were with him all the time. And this is what disciples of the first century would do, no matter who their teacher was. Now, it's helpful for us to notice that, or at least realize that first century discipleship, uh, the relationship between a teacher and his student or pupil, is very different. It's a very different learning 
paradigm than what we have embraced here in Western civilization. Now, if you're like me, when it comes to time for you graduate high school, you're going maybe looking forward to college, you're going to look at colleges, and basically what it boiled down to me was the criteria, knowing where I'm going to go to study, is do I like the campus, right? Is, do I like the way the campus feels, and do they offer uh, the program that I'd like to pursue affordably, right? Cost, do I feel like the campus? What happens, undergrads rarely consider who the teachers are, right? Who, who's actually teaching the content of the classes, uh, and in this way, we tend to be more content-focused than we are of who we're learning from. We see the classroom as the primary learning environment with the whiteboards and the projectors. Uh, and with this paradigm, or learning or education in general is a matter of information retention. Uh, you can even see this how we're evaluated by written exams, like we're, we're quizzed on or tested on what we know, what we've retained, and how we can uh, test out on those things. And, and one of the unfortunate things that happens in embracing this paradigm is that there can be easily become a dichotomy between knowledge, right, understanding certain content, and wisdom, which would be skillful living, right, how we embody what we've learned. And so in a lot of cases... It's easy for us in this paradigm that we're familiar with is it's easy to become book smart, right, to know a lot, but not be wise, not to live skillfully. Now, discipleship in the first century, this is a, a better, I, I would argue, a better paradigm for, for learning at large because here we see content delivered. At the same time, skillful living merges together. It's not just about knowledge, what you retain, but how you live in light of these things. So, so a disciple in this era would, would study not only the content of their teacher, but how that teacher would integrate this into his life. And in this sense, all of life became the classroom. There weren't just isolated places of learning. All of life was the classroom through real-time learning in the market, the social settings, the temple, at home. And in this relationship between the, the, the teacher and the disciple was a very intimate relationship. They were always together. There literally no privacy. Wherever the teacher would go, so would the pupil go as well, and they would stick together. Now, the main objective in discipling wasn't to, to transfer knowledge. It wasn't just about cultivating a new way of thinking. The primary objective in discipling in the first century was to generate a new way of living where doctrine is applied and transformed into discipline. See, what this does is it teaches us a, a, in this time frame, through this learning way, it would be a new way of living life. Now, everyone, all, all of us, have been discipled toward a certain way of living. We all have standards and values and rhythms that create a lifestyle. Now, oftentimes, we unconsciously in inherit this way of living from our parents, which makes sense if you think about that, because this would be the relationship that's most similar to what we I, I have identified as a first-century discipleship paradigm, always together, always learning, observing what we see. 
And so we tend to replicate how our parents lived, how they dealt with money, how they dealt with conflict, what they did in their parenting. And there's times in our adult lives where we say something comes out of our mouth and we, we say like, man, I sounded a lot like my mother right there. Now, parents have an incredible influence over their kids, and, and really, this is why creating a, a gospel culture in our homes is so important. Our kids are, are learning stuff from us, but the home, the parental influence isn't the only way that we learn our way of life. In addition to these influences, uh, we'll either embrace them or reject them, but there's also culture influence, cultural influences at work as well. Now, nowadays, there are many different platforms to broadcast uh, values and ideals and standards, right? We've got YouTube and podcasts and there's social media plus all the news outlets. All of these things function as influencers, things trying to shape our way of living, our way of life by altering our worldview, instilling values and desires within us, right? You look at uh, political shows or, or podcasts. They typically always lean one way or the other, right or left. And in some senses, or in some situations, some of these uh, outlets label themselves as Christian entities, right? Sort of influencing us in that sense. But what is typically most compelling to our culture at large is the strong narrative of the good life. This is a lifestyle that is framed up as the ideal. It carries desirable traits, something that we all desire to strive after. And what happens with this version of the good life, it's typically widely accepted by the vast majority of society but usually it is without critique. Now let me just suggest to you this morning what our version, as Midwesterners, what this good life looks like. I think I could title this the middle class American dream. This is a way of living that says you can have it all, right? You can, you can have a secure nine to five job, dual income, the two and a half kids, the white picket fence in suburbia. You can treat your home as a haven, a fortress, blocking out the world's injustices to maintain your hard-earned comfort. It probably includes a vibrant social life with the people you like, right? Nice vacations, we tend to spend our time wrapped up in what our kids like or, or what at least caters to us. We like sports and drama and music and dance, finding our, our, our time just filled with these things. Now, these are pieces of the middle-class American dream, and, and I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with any of them individually. But when we start to dig into this and really get to underneath, what are the values, what are, what are the standards that, that are underneath of these things, uh, we start to see a few things that if we, if we have a gospel worldview that sort of like blink out at us as, as, a, as a, a beacon, a red light, right? we see underneath of these is a value of comfort and security. We believe that we can maintain comfort and security in our jobs and our bank accounts keeping our homes sort of walled off from the world. 
We, we value the individual over the communal. We see problems in the world and we say, that, that's their problem. I've got my own things to deal with. I'll, I'll thank you. I'll, I'll focus on myself or my own family. We tend to value entertainment and convenience. Just think of the ways that technology is shaping us. In fact, I've been giving up social media for Lent on my phone, and, and I, I find myself all the time. I'm standing kind of like at a standstill waiting for something to happen. I pull my phone out of my pocket, and I go to scroll. Right? It's just a, a natural reflex now. Uh, and I'm like, wait, I can't do that. I'm giving up for Lent, but... But that shapes us. It, it, it's these so-called advancements in entertainment and convenience, they, they sacrifice a lot of times our really meaningful relationships. With this middle-class American dream is a sense of entitlement that runs with this as well, right? This idea of I deserve this. I worked hard, right? That's one thing that we, have, we value as, as Midwesterners, our hard work ethics. I worked hard to get this, so I'm going to enjoy it. Now, live in our culture long enough, and you'll feel the pull of this middle-class American lifestyle and its values. And, and if you don't feel it, it's likely that you've already been sucked into the current of this lifestyle and, and have probably embraced it. And I think all of us have done that to some degree. It's very easy to unknowingly do this, and, and sometimes even knowingly, just blatantly say, this is, this is maybe not right, but I'm going to go with it, because it has a strong gravitational pull. Now, the problem with this way of life, that it's sort of a widely accepted, cultural, culturally embraced way of living, uh, and these values, the problem with it, though it's widely accepted, this lifestyle isn't gospel compatible. Yesterday, I was thinking through this, and I came across a tweet by a pastor named Scott Sauls who who's happened to tweet this out. He says, the call of Jesus is not... Deny your neighbor, take up your comfort, and follow your dreams. In fact, what we heard read today, the call of Jesus from Matthew 16, 24, is that if anyone would follow Jesus, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See, it's not just that the call of Jesus is radically different. The call of Jesus is radically opposed to some of these things that we embrace as a culture. And it's so easy for us to get swept up in them. Now, the people of Jesus' time were swept up in their own cultural version of the good life. They were influenced uh, in ways that maybe were, uh, that Jesus didn't necessarily approve of. In fact, we see this in the beginning of John uh, chapter 8 of John's gospel, one of the passages that, that we had read. We see where Jesus is once again at conflict with the Pharisees. And, and really the, the whole reason why they're at conflict is because the values that Jesus has and the values of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of those, those days, are, are conflicting. Um, where the Pharisees, they viewed things as... Um, their values were external, right? Show yourself as one who's got it together, right? Make yourself acceptable to God by what you do. Put on all the, all the, um, all the appearances of this, right? We even see in Gospels that they're tithing from their spice racks. They're, they're beating their chest and praying, this very dramatic sort of over-the-top expression of how they're right with God. But Jesus comes and he, he says something completely opposed to what they're saying. 
So Jesus says it's not the outside that matters. It's, it's, it's inter- internal. The way back to God isn't by doing, it's by believing, specifically in believing in Jesus himself. Now, this message that Jesus comes with is not received by most Jewish leaders. They take offense to this. They reject Jesus. They, they plan to execute him as a blasphemer. Yet in verse 30 of chapter 8, we're told that there are many who believe in Jesus. And, and the people here, many aren't just like these outsiders. Um, these are some of the religious people, right? Some of the people who have studied Jewish religion for their whole life. And so now as they believe in Jesus, what we find in verse 31 is that they, there's a transfer of discipleship. Verse 31 in John chapter 8, Jesus, it says this, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, right, if you believe what I'm saying, if you trust in me, you are truly my disciples. Now this is a big deal, okay? This Considering who these people are, these people have been following other religious leaders around for their whole life. They've been accumulating this knowledge, learning what the good life looks like. And Jesus says, now in believing in me, I'm your chief discipler. Right? Uh, this, this way of, of life gets overwritten by my new way of life. It's by the grace of God through faith that these men and women are made disciples of Jesus and everything in their life changes. New values, new beliefs that ultimately generates a new way of life because what we believe, what we hold to in our heart ultimately determines our behavior. So now these people come as followers of Jesus. And when they believe the gospel, when they believe in Jesus, his person, his work, it doesn't just create minor tweaks in their life, like a little dash of Jesus here and there. Things radically change. Treating Jesus like an add-in, right? Treating Jesus like the, the equivalent of, of a protein booster in our smoothie is not what Jesus had envisioned in coming and teaching us his ways. The gospel tells us That Jesus doesn't just come to make improvements to our life. Jesus comes to give us a brand new life. One that's completely wrapped up in who he is and what he has done. Now you can say in one sense the gospel creates a disruption in our lives. It, it, It just startles us a little bit. It breaks down our old way of thinking and it gives us a new way of viewing the world. And so in this sense, when our faith is in Jesus, instead of being discipled by our parental, political, or cultural influencers, Jesus now becomes the chief discipler. He becomes the teacher, the rabbi. And just as the people in John 8 believe and now are Jesus' disciples, we too, when we believe in Jesus, when we believe the gospel, we become his disciples as well. Now, at Sacred City, the terminology that we use here to to kind of encapsulate this, this identity as Jesus' disciples, is a learner. Um, Partially because there's a lot of baggage that comes with the word disciple, or or maybe it's just foreign to our, our cultural context. But this idea of learner helps us to understand what we're all about, right? We're learning how to follow Jesus in all of life. 
And the more our understanding of the gospel grows, understanding of who Jesus is, what he's done, the more our lives become shaped like Jesus. And we could study all day long what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, every Sunday when we gather together, that's what we're doing every day in missional community. We're thinking through what does it look like for me to follow Jesus and to have a sermon that's comprehensive gonna, comprehensively going to tell you what it's like to be a disciple of Jesus. It would be absurd to think that I could do that here in, in 45 minutes. But we can see that if we're following Jesus, we're learning from Jesus, we're absorbing what he's like. He's loving, he's compassionate, he's gentle, he's humble, he's gracious. He's got a love for God's word. He's fearlessly committed to the truth. He promotes beauty and goodness. And so as his disciples, we latch onto those things as well. But today, I want to just take a few things. I want to limit myself to a few things about our identity as learners that we receive in the gospel. The first thing that I'd like to highlight, as learners in the gospel, we become lifelong learners. Every day holds an opportunity for us to grow in our understanding of the gospel, to learn what Jesus is like. So you don't just come to Jesus, get the bare essentials of what you need for salvation and move on with your life. The whole life of a Christian is going deeper and deeper and deeper in your understanding of the gospel. It's a, it's a matter of, of journeying and growing. And as first, in 2 Peter 3, 17 says, growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord. See, the interesting thing about our identity as learners is though we're completely content in the gospel, Right? Our identity is, is absolutely secure. We're never settled. Right? There's always a hunger for more. We want to know more. It's like when you're dating your spouse. right? You sit down, you, you meet them, and you're just like, I just got to know everything about you. Tell me where you grew up. Tell me what you're into. Tell me your favorite color. Tell me this. Tell me this. You just want to keep learning and learning and learning about this person because you love them, right? That's a lot what it's like when we come to Jesus because we love the gospel, because we love Jesus, we just want to know. We want to know all about him. We're filled with curiosity and intrigue. And so what this looks like in a lot of ways, right, if we're living as learners, what we're going to do, what are the things we're going to do if we want to learn? We're going to go to our Bible. We want to learn about Jesus. The best place to go is to scriptures. Jesus is the word made flesh. God's word is right there in front of us. Every page. I love it. The Jesus Storybook Bible says every page whispers his name. We go to our Bibles and we study and we learn and we, we consume and devour what it is Jesus is like. And as we do, we learn about Jesus. We learn what God is like because Jesus is, is uh, the, the invisible God made visible. Right? He shows us what God is like. So we study God's word, right? And, and, and things like listening to podcasts and sermons and reading theology books and growing in our understanding, right? We are, these are part of the things that we want to do as learners. The desire to learn feeds our faith. It increases our faith, actually. By, by pursuing uh, learning and knowledge of Jesus, our, our faith grows and expands, right? Things that are full of life grow. If you don't believe me, just stand out in the entryway when the kids get dismissed from Sunday school, right? These little kids are growing up so fast, 
full of life. They're growing. And as we learn more, our faith grows, and, and we stay rooted, right? We gain a stability in who Jesus is, who we are. And Jesus used this story of the, the fool who built his house on sand and the man who, wise man who built his house on the rock, right? Jesus is saying, I am the rock, right? I'm the rock to build your life upon. And so we study and we learn, and in that we become stable and secure in our faith so when the storms of life come, we can keep root. But to leave learning strictly as an intellectual endeavor... Uh, is an incomplete form of learning, like living in our identity as learners. Uh, my son, Kuiper, my, my wife does catechism with him uh, most days, and, and there's these big questions about who God is, who is he, what's God like, right? And my, my son, he can regurgitate these answers. He knows the answers to these questions, but there's something missing in, in his understanding of these answers, Right? There are all kinds of people who know the truth about Jesus or, or they think they know the truth about Jesus in their heads, but there is this void in their heart of really grasping this truth. Now, our understanding of truth is incomplete without an experience of this truth. For most Christians, it's not the information about Jesus that's convincing. It's the experience that people have with him. In order to really know Jesus, we must have a real encounter with him. Think of, of a medical student, for example. Right, they spend years and years and years studying books. And they may, uh, they may have read every single book that's out there about performing open-heart surgery. But until they, they get hands-on experience, they look over the operating table for themselves, they learn how to do it, they have an experience in the operating room, that's when knowledge becomes real to them. So as disciples of Jesus, learning must not only be an intellectual endeavor, but an experiential endeavor that we must know. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about this often. He's a... He's a a preacher um, in, in Britain, uh, he would talk about knowing Jesus in terms of light and in heat. He would say that, that knowing the truth about Jesus intellectually is like light that illuminates the room, right? By it, we can see things clearly. But the heat is when we experience what is true. Right? When, we, when we get a hands-on, tangible experience with the truth of this, it, we, we, it's like we can know about s that sin is forgiven in the gospel, right? But then it's a whole different thing to know that sin has been lifted from me. Right? In Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, Jesus talks about this experience. He, he, he gives a picture of this. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See here, to, to know Jesus isn't just about knowing him in, on black and white paper, right? It's about having this experience for Jesus to give you rest for your soul. And the last piece that I want to highlight of being a learner is that we're always, as learners, we're always passing on what we know. Ray Ortland, 
says that we are always one generation away from total apostasy. Right? We're always one generation away from turning our back on God and completely forgetting who he is. So this is why we must embrace our identity as disciples who make disciples. See, when Jesus gives his last words, his address to his disciples before he ascends into heaven, he gives them what we call the Great Commission. He says, go now and make disciples. He's speaking to his disciples. He's saying, as my disciples, go and make disciples. See, Jesus' version of discipleship not only means learning for ourselves, but communicating and teaching what we've learned to others. In fact, if if our own discipleship doesn't include teaching others or discipling other people, then our discipleship itself is incomplete because leading others in the faith is part of our own discipleship. I bet your MC leaders can attest that, that one of the most pressing things with their walk with Jesus is the responsibility of leading a missional community. Because right, in that place, that exposes our need. It exposes what we need from Jesus and the gospel. And so it is the responsibility of every Christian that each one would teach one. Right, this is how the grassroots movement of the kingdom of God works, that we're all disciples who make disciples. We take responsibility for our own discipleship and the discipleship of others as well. Now, one thing that we say at Sacred City all the time is the only way to make disciples is in community and on mission. That's the way that Jesus did it. That's the way that we're going to do it. There was never meant to be these special programs and classes in the church that 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 becomes how people are discipled. I'm not knocking. I love learning. Right There's definitely a place for us to learn and to grow and maybe step into a class or seminar in that sense. But discipleship isn't a program that we sign up for. Our whole life is discipleship, learning how all of our life belongs to Jesus, and this happens in the ordinary parts of our life. In fact, that's the only way to make well-rounded disciples who, who both understand intellectually and experientially what Jesus is like. It's when we do it in community and on mission. And what you'll find that, that when you... As learners, we we step into that identity as learners and we're growing and we're learning more. What you'll find is that this presses us further into the gospel. And as we move further into the gospel intellectually and experientially as learners, it presses us further into the other pieces of our gospel identity as family, right? as missionaries. And we begin to understand the primary way that we relate to each other is as servants. So, so in learning, we're just growing deeper and deeper into our gospel identity. Now, it's important for us to see that we just, Jesus didn't just come to show us how to live a better life. Right? It's not a matter of trading up from one leader to a better leader. See, Jesus came to show us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That he is the way that we return to the Father. He is the version of the good life that we couldn't live for ourselves. See, that's not by our good works. It's so easy for us. The way that we know learning is that we learn in order we can pass a test. Right? We study so we can pass a test. 
gospel identity of learner is completely different. We don't learn so we can pass a test, right? We don't learn so we can get to heaven and so show God, like, this is what I know about you, and now I can pass and get in, right? No, the gospel is different because we learn because we've already passed the test. Jesus has given us the gold star for us, right? He's the one that earned it. See, Jesus lost his life for ours. He lived the good life. He lived the perfect life. He lived a life near to God and, and with others. He was completely deserving of glory. But Jesus went to the cross and laid that down on his own accord. Nobody took it from him. He chose to give up his life so that we could be credited with his. Matthew 16, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, when we lose our life for the sake of Jesus, when we come to Jesus as our teacher, what we find is maybe we'll say no to the way of living that, that, that the culture embraces at large, but what we find is a truer, more robust Good life, a life close to Jesus, a life lived close to God. This is what Jesus has earned for us in the gospel. And he gives it to us freely. We're gonna come up and take part of the Lord's Supper here. And, and this is this is part of our learning as disciples of Jesus. This is a place where, where we not only intellectually see that Jesus laid down his life, but it's, it's an experiential piece as well. We take his, his body and his, his blood and we take it into ourselves. And it, it's a grace that God has for us. And as we, as we partake of it, it is this that transforms us from the inside out. It's in remembering that Jesus went to the cross that enables us to carry our own cross and follow Jesus, to pursue a life of learning, to be his disciple and follower. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Not only was he a wise teacher, but he was the wise teacher who knew the way back to you, that he gave himself up for us so that we could be brought in and Father, I pray that you now by your spirit would enable us uh, to become lifelong learners, that we would grow day by day in our knowledge of the gospel, that we would grow in our love for you and for one another as a family of missionary servants. Father God, and I pray that as we live as disciples, as learners of you, would you help us to cultivate a discipleship culture where we're not only taking responsibility for ourselves as followers of Jesus, the one who has, has shown us the good life, but we would be helping others to walk alongside with us, to follow after you. We thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.